You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. That's this church, Philadelphia and Smyrna, Church of Smyrna. We don't know a ton about the church in Philadelphia, but we can assume a few things from this letter. They were likely not a very large church. They likely did not have a lot of resources, and they likely had been oppressed or alienated in some ways, specifically by the Jewish people in their community. Remember, in the early decades of the church, the churches were mostly Jewish or a mix of Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And the earliest Christians were still a part of the Jewish community. They would still attend the synagogues. But from reading this letter, it appears that maybe the Christians in Philadelphia weren't allowed to do so. They were rejected. They weren't allowed to be a part of the synagogue. And so their faithfulness hurt. But what we also learn from this letter is that the church in Philadelphia remained faithful to Christ even in the face of that opposition. If there's something that I want you to understand is is that that's what I desire when I pray for Faith Church. That we would remain faithful even in the, the, the world that says this isn't important. I, I know brothers and sisters who serve churches that say Sunday morning can, we can take it or leave it and my mouth drops wide open. I think the book of Hebrews has something different to say about that, but that's their opinion. I pray that we remain faithful even when it costs something to remain faithful. This church, this church is a model for us in many ways. You could say that those Christians in Philadelphia are the type of Christians that we ought to kind of imitate. Not imitate in a way of being fake imitations, but in a way of saying, hey, these guys did something right. Now, in your bulletin, there's a purple sheet, and in that purple sheet, there is a, uh, on that purple sheet, there is a sermon outline, and this is the, one of the first blanks that you're going to come to. And this is the first thing that we learn from the Church of Philadelphia. Jesus has the key of David. We're going to unpack that. You know, you're writing this down, and you're, you're picturing, um, <laughs> of course, my keys are hiding. You're picturing this. It's not exactly what we're talking about. But Jesus has the key of David. Something you must know before we dive into this point is that the key in Scripture is not the little things that we have today. No, key in Scripture is most times metaphorical for these two things. If you want to write these down, they're not, it's not on your sermon outline. This is free of charge. I'm not going to charge you on the way out the door for this information. But really, it's about power and authority. That's what they're saying is, is that when, when we say that Jesus has the key of David in this scripture passage that we're about to read, you are, we are hearing what we should hear is, is that Jesus has power and he has authority over all things. 
Now, that may not be rocket science to some of you because you've been in the church for your entire life and you believe that and you know that in your heart. But here's the problem. Sometimes there's a disconnect from here to here. And while we know it in our heart and we know it in our mind, we don't live like he has a power and authority. And so in the church of Philadelphia, here's what it says in verses 7, in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Here Jesus is describing himself as two things, or a few things. He's the Holy One. And what he's saying to the church in Philadelphia and to the other churches, because remember this, this, these letters kind of floated around all the churches, is, is that I'm the one that you should measure yourself against. You may be more spiritual than the person that sits next, don't look at them right now, sits next to you this morning, You may be spiritual and then the person who sits in front of you this morning. But do you line up to Jesus? Is what the church of Philadelphia is being told here. See, we like to line ourselves up. Well, I certainly don't do that during the week. And that believer does. And so, let me tighten my tie up a little bit. Look how holy I am. And meanwhile, Jesus looks down from heaven in a loving way, in a a very supportive way, and he says, oh, Brett, you fall so short. You're lining up to the wrong people. And then it says he's the true one. Boy, does that smack in 2022. I would love to hear what people would have to say if Jesus was down here on Fish Street Highway at Target and he stood in the middle of the aisle and he said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. Because doesn't everybody argue about truth these days? That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And Jesus stands and says very confidently, I am truth. You will not find mistruth in me. And then he ends with that, what we're looking at in this point, holds the key of David. Here's Jesus describing himself, again, as the Holy One and the True One. And it's a revelation, it's it's a, a, excuse me, it's a reference back to Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, a man named, a man named Sheba, Shebna, is mentioned He works for a king, Hezekiah, in a position much like the chief of staff in the White House. So it's a pretty important, and Sheba, Shebana, is an unfaithful steward. He, in fact, goes off the deep end in pride. He actually says, I'm going to be buried with the greats. I'm going to do all this great and wonderful stuff. You can read it later in Isaiah 22. But he, but he brings it all up and he says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this. And he goes off the deep end as the chief of staff. 
makes himself almost more important than Hezekiah, the king. And Sheba would be replaced with a man named Elikim. When he examines Elikim, we come to realize that he foreshadows Christ. Elikim has control of the key to the palace, which is referred to as David's house. Elikim controls the gate, and he determines who can come into the king's palace and who needs to sit on the outside of king's palace. Well, in the same way, just like Elikim controlled who came into David's house, the Messiah will control who comes into God's house. No one likes to talk about this because we want to believe that when people pass away, you know, you, you ever been on Facebook or something like that, and, and I don't mean any, any offense, but you, you, you know someone's life who has not lived anywhere close to what Christ wants to, and you hear people saying things like, well, they're in heaven now. No, 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 they're not. If they haven't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's a hard reality for us to swallow, but Jesus gives the gift and says, you have a choice with what you do with the gift. Jesus has established himself as the key holder, the one who makes the decision, in or out. He has a lot of power. And here's what I want you to definitely remember from this whole little spiel about the background of this whole stuff. His approval, it matters a lot. Even more than we want to make it matter in 2022. So Jesus... Next, opens a door that no one can shut. Listen to verse 8 with me. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you can have little, you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus, the one with the key, the one whose opinion matters most, he has opened the door to them, referring to the door to God's house. And so no one can shut it. No one has the power to shut them out. Jesus tells them, I'm the only one with the key. I control who comes in, excuse me, and I'm inviting you to come in. What a remarkable promise. In essence, what Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia is this. Yes, you've all been kicked out of the synagogue. That is so true by the Jewish people. They don't approve of you. They won't open their door to you. But guess what? Your Savior approves of you. I open my door to you. Jesus is inviting them into God's family, into God's house. And guess what, friends? Even though the world may try to shut us out, even though the world may try to close the door, this invitation, this isn't just to the Church of Philadelphia. This is to you, too. He has opened the door and he has said, come in and worship me. And no one can shut a door that Jesus opens. 
It's powerful. Then in the second half of verse 8, it says this, and I know I read it earlier. You have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Kept my word, you have not denied my name. Here Jesus is praising them. He's praising the church of Philadelphia because they've remained faithful to him. They've kept his word. I want you to notice a little phrase in there. It says, you have little power. Now, we don't know precisely what Jesus is referring to when he says this to the church of Philadelphia, little power. But when we get the sense that this church wasn't big and strong, they didn't have a flashy reputation like the church in Sardis did. Jesus looks at this church in the Philadelphians and he says to them, you look to many like you are small and insignificant. You know, like you don't have all the money in the world. But you're not small and insignificant. You're big and strong in me, Jesus says. You have been faithful, Church of Philadelphia. Because of that, you are strong. Next, Christians will be defended. Christians will be defended. Look at verse 9 with me. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. We've heard these words before. Synagogue of Satan. People who thought... They were Jewish, but they weren't. And you say, well, how, how does that work? Like it does today. Do you know when they take uh, censuses? According to the latest census, there's been like an uprise in Christians. 96% or something like that. Yet those who are involved in discipleship and in church growth and in things that mark what Christian maturity looks like has plummeted. How does this number go up and this number go down? Because someone believes something about themselves that is not true. It's just not true. Well, I, I, was, I was born into the church, Pastor. You're not born into the church. I mean, I hope this isn't the first time you're hearing this. At some point, it has to become your faith, not your parents' faith. I remember those ugly days in college where all of a sudden it wasn't good enough to believe because Craig and Lynette believed, Kindig believed. I remember those ugly days of spending hours in my RA's room. I'm not sure I even believe. 
because it was their belief, not my belief. And so the same thing was going on in the Church of Philadelphia. There were Jews who were causing real issues in the church because they weren't really Jews or in the synagogue because they denied Jesus. Jesus refers to them as Jews who are not really Jews. But then Jesus makes a prophecy about these Jews. These Jewish people who are downing, doing the work of the devil, they are going to come bow down at the feet of the Christian. This prophecy from Jesus actually comes from the Old Testament. Just like we saw earlier with Elikim, there's another allusion from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 45, verse 14. It'll be on the screen as well. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you. Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside you. That's the prophecy that was made to Israel. So think about this. This prophecy is made to Israel more than 700 years earlier than what we're reading. A prophecy that the Egyptians and the Ethiopians would come and bow at the feet of the Jews. Not worshiping the Jewish people themselves, but acknowledging that God of Israel is the one true God. These people from other nations, nations that hated the people of God and oppressed the people of God, people from those nations are going to come and worship the one true God. They're going to acknowledge that they were wrong about God and wrong about Jesus. These Gentiles are going to look at the Jews and say, surely God is in you. So that's the prediction for Israel in Isaiah 45. Jesus is taking this prophecy that was for the Jews and he's applying it to the Christians in Philadelphia. So I want you to consider something. How striking would that have been for the Christians in Philadelphia when Jesus says to them, listen, those Jews who hated you? Remember those Jews who locked the doors of the synagogue so you couldn't get in? The Jews who oppressed you. They think the nations are going to come from them, but actually they are going to come to you. Can you imagine being a Christian in the church of Philadelphia at that moment in time? A believer in Jesus Christ? These people who have made fun of you, who have locked you out of the synagogue, who have treated you less than ideal, are going to come back and bow at your feet one day Not because you're great, but they're going to realize the God within you is great. Those words must have been mind-blowing for those Christians. One day there will be people who opposed you. One day there will be people who were in your schools, at your job places, who mocked you for believing in Jesus, who will bow, have to bow their knee to the very Lord and Savior who they told you was false. 
See, it doesn't just go for the Church of Philadelphia. It goes for you too. We know it because the scriptures say, what does it say? Every knee, not every other knee, not every third knee, not every fourth knee. Every knee will bow to the name of Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no little indication there in the Greek that it's only those that have the last name that start with L. It's every knee will bow. So yes, even those who are currently making fun of you, currently putting you down for standing on your faith, will someday have to bow their knee to that Lord and Savior who they tell you is just a bunch of bunk right now. You are the one that Jesus loves. This is not, I believe, on your sermon outline, but you are the one that Jesus loves. Now, let me read that last part of the verse again. They will learn that I have loved you. Jesus says that those who mocked you and oppressed you, they're going to realize that you are the ones that I love. Have you ever considered that? Faith Church. You're the ones he loves. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, and you're a follower of Jesus, then you're the ones Jesus loves. Now, he loves the entire world. He wants the world to come to know him, but you are the ones. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We deserve hell, but Jesus has made a way for us to be rescued. And if, he, if we genuinely surrender to him, he will forgive our sins. So I ask you this question. Put aside all the, your beliefs. Have you genuinely surrendered to Jesus? You know, we're doing this Henry Blackaby Bible study, and I don't know about anybody else who's doing it, and you can tell me that I'm the only one, and that I'll, I'll be okay with that because I grow at my space, you grow at your space. But I read, I believe it was Monday's study. They all kind of come together. Where Henry Blackaby says... If you don't love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind, everything else is off. And that ate at me. The whole day. And he goes on and he gives examples about how people come to him all the time as a pastor and they say, well, this part of my life is off, and this part of my life is off, and I don't feel like I'm close to God here, and I don't feel like I'm close to God here. And he says, my first question is, do you, uh, do you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? It's powerful. It's exactly what Jesus is talking to, talking about in the Church of Philadelphia. Why did they remain faithful even when it hurt? Because there's a group, there's a small group, and it's a mighty, but it's a mighty group in God's hands in the Church of Philadelphia that loves Jesus with all their heart, soul, and mind. 
Now, this one is not on your sermon outline, but it was that Jesus will protect his people. Here's what he says in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The term dwell on earth is an interesting phrase. Here's what's going on here. I'll just, I'll just kind of nutshell it for you. You have endured patiently. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. What he's talking about is, is that there are people who who believe or who say they believe, but they make it all about this earth. And so what Jesus is saying to them is, is that this is not your inhabitants. This is not your place. Other scripture passages say it this way, we're aliens just passing through. Not the aliens, woo, coming down from, you know, Mars or whatever. But we are aliens. We, we do not belong here. That's why we struggle here. Because we belong there in the presence of our God and we long to be with him. That's why in, when imperfection hits our homes, when imperfection hits our churches, when imperfection hits anything in our lives, we look around and we say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You're right, it's not. Because it's perfect up there. Or wherever. <laughs> Heaven. It's perfect. And so Jesus is saying to them, Friends, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you. But I'm also going to test those who have the inhabitants of the earth. Here's what literally it could say. Who are earthly minded, who make it all about this place and forget that we are just passing through this place. Now, certainly this does not mean we won't suffer. The New Testament has plenty of passages that guarantee us suffering in this life. No, it's saying that no type of suffering will have the final word. That's the test. Some will go through this suffering, these testing, and they will fall for it. They will fall. They will fail the test. Why? Because they're so concerned about what's happening here on earth that they've forgotten that there's a greater plan. And when they're so concerned about earth, they will fall for the test because they will not understand that there's a heavenly gain. And he says it to the church of Philadelphia. Here's what Jesus is literally praying. He's praying that no matter what we face in this life, that the evil one would not be able to rip us away from this, the family of God. Because like sheep, when we get ripped away from the family of God, we are very good targets for Satan. Let's look at verse 13. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take 
your crown. Because you know you win, because you know he will hold you fast, then you too should hold fast. The knowledge that we will win inspires us to hold on. That's the call of Jesus in this, this letter to the Philadelphians. Listen, keep holding on because you're going to win at the end of the day. You know, you get a good book and sometimes you want to cheat. You want to go to the end of the book. You want to read how does the main character make out? How does, let me give you a little hint. If you read the last chapter of the book, you're a winner. He's a winner. All the things that look like they're going to win right now, right here today in the news, ain't going to win. He will. And what he's saying to the church of Philadelphia is, you want to know how to stay strong with me till the end of the day? Remember that you will win. Don't be arrogant about it. Don't shove it in people's faces. But remember that you will win because when you know you're already going to win, you're going to go out and play hard. And then last, he will make you a pillar. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of my city of my God. Jesus promises to, these, to them to make them a pillar in the temple of God. Think about the idea of a pillar. What would it have meant for the Christians in Philadelphia to be called a pillar? Let me remind you, these Christians probably did not feel strong. They didn't even feel like pillars. It's kind of what Peter might have felt like when he's called the rock of which this church will stand. And he goes out and denies the very Jesus who says that. He probably felt like a pebble, not a rock. Same thing for the Christians in Philadelphia. But he promises to make them a pillar. He also promises them to give them their own name. So in the closing this morning, I want you to see an illustration from a movie that I have learned to love. When you have kids, you got to learn to love it. Toy Story. One of the key characters is Buzz Lightyear. And for most of the movie, he believes that he's a space ranger. But eventually, he realizes that he's not a space ranger. He's actually a toy. And Buzz is greatly discouraged and even depressed. Towards the end of the movie, Buzz and another toy, Woody who's coming up, are kidnapped by Sid, the evil next-door neighbor. Woody is trying to convince Bud to fight, to help them escape. But Buzz doesn't seem to care. He's totally dejected by the reality that he's not a spare space ranger. But Woody steps in and gives an impassioned speech. And here's what he basically says. Yeah, Buzz, you're not a space ranger, but you're a toy. <clears throat> and your owner, Andy, he loves you. Buzz Lightyear is con con contemplating Woody's words, and he looks down at the bottom of his feet, and here's what he sees on the screen. He sees Andy written on the bottom of his foot. You see, Andy had written his name on all toys, all the toys, including Buzz. And you know what happens in Bud's life when he finds out that Andy's name is on the bottom of his shoes? A transformation. He realizes that he's not what he thought he was. And although he feels insignificant in the world, although he feels like he has little power, he realizes that he is loved by his owner. Friends, you're loved by your owner. I don't care what other people told you 
you are loved by your owner. And your name is not written on the bottom of your feet. His name. His name is written on your heart. He loves you. And when you feel like you don't measure up like good old Buzz Lightyear, when you feel rejected, when you feel alone, when you remind yourself, will you remind yourself you are the one he loves? Jesus loves you. He demonstrated his love for you at the cross. At the cross, he died a brutal death, a death he did not deserve. He died because you matter, period. If you believe, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've genuinely trusted in Christ alone, then the atonement at the cross applies to you. Your sins have been forgiven. The door is open to you, a door that no one, remember, no one can shut. You see, Jesus made a way for us. He did it at the cross. And that's what brings us right here this morning to the table. To remember what Jesus did at the cross in just a moment, we're going to partake of that table, that blood that body. This is for everyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a member here at Faith Church. If you've trusted in Christ, if you have surrendered to him, then you are the one he loves. And he's opened the door wide to you this morning. And you are certainly invited to partake in this meal with us this morning. However, if you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, if you have not surrendered to him, then today we would just ask that you just stay seated. Not come to the table this morning. That's not because we're mean or rude. It's because the Apostle Paul says when you partake in that kind of attitude, you are passing judgment on yourself, and this church does not want anyone to pass judgment on themselves. So I would encourage you to consider trusting in Christ if that's you today. If you have children here this morning, it is the parental, parental decision whether they have a relationship with Jesus and whether they understand what each element represents in the communion service. In other words, it's your decision whether your child partakes or not this morning. The ushers for this morning will come by your pew and they will invite you to come to the table this morning. If you have one of the cups and the bread for the service in your pew, please partake as I serve the first table. And for the first table, I'm going to invite the ushers and the musician for the communion service, which is my wife, who will be assisting me this morning to this table. So would you please come at this moment, the ushers and those who are assisting me. Please kneel if you are able. At the first table, we always have a time of confession, of prayer, of prayer of confession. And so we're going to ask you to bow your heads at this time, and I'm going to pray. And this is a time for you to ask the Lord to forgive you of those times where you have made him um, not the center of your life, and you have not loved him with all your heart, soul, 
and mind. So let's bow for a word of prayer together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to partake of this body and this blood, shed for us by you, the one who loves us, loves us so much that you wrote your name on each of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we matter. And Lord, I just want to now just ask us to think of those times when we've made you less than the middle of our lives, pushed you off in the pursuit of earthly happiness, did something that, you know, we all do. The scripture is clear, for all have fallen short to the glory of God. Now one person within the sound of my voice has, has made it this week without falling short. And so, Lord, we're thankful for the scriptures that tell us that you are faithful and just and you forgive us our sins as we confess them to you at this moment in time. And now, Lord, we ask that you will be with us as we partake of this body and this blood and that we will be reminded of your goodness over and over again. And may we, may we honor you in the ways that we partake of this today. For Lord, it's in your name we pray this all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 